0: Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins and Asai Calderon-Muñiz.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We are very
0: excited to
1: continue and basically start wrapping up uh, the our review of the amc PsychSocial outline for the MCAT today. So in the you probably just finished watching our AMA last week. Really excited. Um, so we're just going to keep going and, and going along. And this time, uh, the last, before the AMA, the last one we uh, podcast we talked about was a little bit looking more at individual interactions. We're taking a step back again and looking back at entire populations. Um, so the f- just kind of diving right in, It's we're, we're wrapping up. I really want to make sure that we can give you the most that we can. Um, so you guys have probably heard of Thomas Malthus at some point. And if you have not, congratulations, you just started them for the first time. <laughs> um, and so you can probably already start piecing together what we'll be talking about, because I mentioned that we'll be talking about entire populations. So what we're really trying to figure out when we are taking a look at Malthusian, Malthusian, something along those lines theory is, um, will population growth be matched by resource growth, right? So uh, Thomas Malthus wrote this essay on population growth. And the primary idea in this essay was that people, the population is growing exponentially. And I think we can all kind of see that happening, right? There's there's plenty of um, growth in terms of entire population size, but the resources available to populations only grows in a um, linear arithmetic fashion. So basically we have a problem. The resources available are too far too few compared to the population that is growing and continuing to grow i guess that's that's the meaning of the word um and so this overpopulation is actually what causes the the problems in society and this is such a big problem and it's such a big producer of problems that there will eventually come a point where the resources cannot keep up with population growth and so we reach this uh Malthusian crisis, catastrophe, trap, all of those are different terms for the same thing. Um, And basically the population will have to correct itself. Um, And there will be this massive die-off of auto-correction because the resources just aren't available to maintain a population of that size. It's a pretty, pretty dark (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, theory. Um, And yeah, it's, it's pretty dark, but he had, we're still left with some questions, right? Because we've definitely seen situations where um, you have populations with fewer resources, right? Resource poor environments, but with increasing population sizes. So we were left with this question of, how do we explain that? So came up with another idea.
0: Yeah, so the idea, What we're going to talk about is the, the, this demographic transition model, which is kind of like the updated, I think most people would say just the more correct. Um, but the Malthusian thing, I I do want to kind of spend a second here. So this, like this guy Malthus was like an economist. And so he like liked everything to be lines and equations and things like that. And I think most people would say like resources don't grow linearly. Um, but like within his model and how he talked about things, like that's that was the his proposed thing. I think most of us would agree that there's a limit to the like the amount of resources. Like we can't like there's only so much sunlight hitting the earth. Like there's a limit. Like at some point we can't grow more plants. Like we can keep growing more and more until a point because then we don't have enough sunlight. But a lot of this hits um, on this idea of like a lack of like a lack of innovation. Um, cause obviously like we can grow plants indoors, right? Like we have grow lights and things like that. Um, I don't think any of that existed in, uh, Thomas Malthus's time. Um, I think it was like 1800s, but like everyone, when he came out with this, everyone freaked out. Cause it's like, oh, we're all like, what's going to happen is we're going to hit this catastrophe where there's just not enough food and resources. And just like, everyone's going to die. And like, just a lot of people are going to die because everyone's going to be starving and there's just going to be too few resources. Um, but Yeah. And so like, it's kind of like weird, scary, doom and gloom sort of thing. But at this point, we've pretty much just like, I think most biologists and most people looking at populations have come to realize that like, it's not really like, it doesn't seem like these are the trends that it's just going to keep population keeps increasing exponentially. And so that's what this demographic transition model comes in. And this explains why we do have some of these like jumps in growth and these like huge increases in growth that Malthus was seeing in this kind of like exponential form. But the, the idea here is this demographic transition model has four stages, maybe five, um, like deciding on that fifth one is kind of a weird thing. We'll talk about that in a second. We have these four stages in a population. And these are basically looked at as we as as a nation or country industrializes. So as you look at that, like at the beginning or a pre-industrial society, we have a society that like everyone's having a bunch of kids and also everyone's dying. And like, so there's like this really high death rate, also a really high birth rate. Um, I like to think about like, you know, the like pilgrims coming to America and like, you know, that's sort of like before the industrial revolution and like, families that are like, you know, we had 12 kids and like three of them survived. And like, so like there's a lot of birth, but there's also a lot of death. And so, a lot of this transition model is about tracking birth and death rates, and kind of how these these change over time. So, generally, in a society, as they start to industrialize, they start to have tools and um, like you know like ways to like you know grow things more efficiently and like help people more efficiently um, with like hospitals and medicine and things like that the death rate starts to drop. And so this takes us into stage two, which is when the death rate is dropping. Now, at first, when there's like a lot of kids being born, but a lot of people are dying, like the population is just stable, like it's a small population. But then as the death rate falls, what happens is you're still having a lot of kids, but they're not dying. So like now I had like 13 kids and two of them died. And so now I like, you have this like huge, like exponential growth in population. And this is the, the stage two is this like early expanding. And so the population starts to go up because you have like more people being born than you have people dying because just like medicine's gotten better. Like people aren't dying of starvation. Like just the resources are better just kind of overall. And so the population starts to increase. And then we get to stage three where the birth rate starts to decrease. And this is like, I like to rationalize this in my head of like, you know, generations. And so like that generation in, in uh, stage two, it's like, like my, my, my parents had a, like 13 kids and two of them died. So it's like 11 children in this house and they just like, wasn't enough resources. And we're like all like sharing the same pair of like clothes through like 11 like children getting passed down. And so later on when I have kids, I don't want to have 11 kids because that's too much. Um, and so you have, you start to have this birth rate fall because even though the resources are are plenty, like just like having like tons and tons of kids, it, like just doesn't seem to make sense. Um, like in terms of, of just like family life um, before it did. Cause like a lot of them were dying, and, but now it's like that kind of doesn't work. And so the population starts still is increasing because at this point, the death rate is very low and the, the pop, the birth rate is falling. It's not, it doesn't, doesn't just like do a precipitous drop. But it's like starting to curve down. And so our birth rate is still higher than our death rate, which takes us into stage four. Which is when the birth rate and death rate are both very low, but roughly equal. And so this explains why like Malthus, for example, was seeing this like huge increase in population because Malthus was um, living in, I think, England um, during this sort of industrialization era, like as you were industrializing as that they're in like stage two and stage three. And so you started to see like a lot of, of population growth because the death rate fell first. And then later on the birth rate started to drop. And so that kind of explains where Malthus was getting a lot of that. But once, once a population reaches stage four, this like industrialized society, Like the population doesn't really change that much. Note that the population is much higher than where it was at first. The population was low in stage one and then is rising in stage two and three. And then it just levels out because in stage four, your birth rate and death rates are roughly equal. But like you just had like a huge population growth before that. And so now the population is relatively stable, although a much higher level than what it was previously. And this is what most people like see in an industrialized country, this is definitely what we see in kind of the US, right? Like the average married couple has like two kids, right? Like roughly like 2.5 or something in that. Like if two people come together and they make two people, like that makes the population stay pretty much even, right? And so, so we're, we're in this kind of like stage four. And so the demographic transition model originally was proposed to just have these four stages. So stage one, Birth rate and death rate are high. Stage two, death rate's falling. Stage three, birth rate's falling. Stage four, they're both just low and equal. But as societies have started to progress and advance, it seems like there might be a fifth stage. Um now this fifth stage is is kind of interesting and I think one of the best examples of this is Japan. Um currently like they most people would say that they're the like the the premier example of this fifth stage in the demographic transition model B- because what's happening in Japan is the birth rate is is falling. Like the birth rate was low and now it's falling even more. And so it's actually really interesting that the population in Japan is dropping. And so this is the first time population drops in any of these Uh, any of these levels because in stage one, it's stable. Stage two and three, the population is increasing. Stage four, the population is high and just stable. But now in in stage five, it seems like the population is dropping. Um, And this is definitely something you do see in Japan. I actually know it's like a lot of like the Japan government and stuff is actually really like concerned about this because there's like fewer younger people, more older people. And that creates imbalances in terms of healthcare and money and like kind of like the similar thing to what we have in the US of all the baby boomers retiring all at the same time and everyone's worried about social security. Um, but I, I know it's gotten bad enough to the point in Japan where they have, like the government, you know, I think certain cities, has offered to pay for first dates. Like you can, you can like put in an application and they will like, they'll pay for your first date because they're trying to get people to date and get married and have children because people just aren't doing that. Um, I would argue that maybe some of that's going on in the US as well. Like we might be teetering on this this fifth stage um, because I think it's, it's a lot more acceptable now than it was 30, 40 years ago to just not have kids. Um, I think it's a much more kind of acceptable uh, world view. I think like kind of depends on where you're at. Like here in the Midwest, where I'm at, that still seems kind of weird to just like not want kids. Wait, what? Um, but I think definitely on the coast, it's a lot more acceptable um, overall. I still don't think that the population of the U.S. is dropping because there's also immigration, and so people are moving into the U.S. And this demographic transition model is not a like applicable like applying any sort of like uh, immigration or emigration um, into these scenarios, um, but just like the birth rate and death rate and how that affects things overall.
1: Yeah. As you were talking, that was something I definitely wanted to to bring up, right? Because yes, populations can increase and decrease in size for a lot of reasons, right? In part, this model is particularly focused on birth rate, right? Uh, infant mortality rate, um, it's also based off of, uh, you know, just law life. Longevity. There we go. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But like you said, you know, there's there's immigration, people moving into a a, a region or a population um, or a country, and then emigration leaving it. So I, I agree with you in that the U.S. internally, right, excluding any sort of immigration, emigration is probably declining. You know, I can think at least just from conversations with friends, at least people in my generation, their parents or their grandparents even did tend to have a lot more children. Whereas you compare it to what they're interested in having, they are not interested in having, you know, as many children a lot of the times. And yes, you'll have some exceptions and, you know, exceptions can go either way. Um, but there is this definite decrease, but with this constant immigration, right? It's, it's wouldn't be fair to say that the entire population is decreasing, right? The population size. Um, so there's a lot that goes into play and a lot of nuance that go into play in, into how this truly plays out and all of the semi-infinite factors that can, that can play out, especially when you think about like technological advancements and, you know, um, maternal age, right? Rising as well, things like that. Um, so there, there's so much that goes on into this or goes into this. Um, I also wanted to mention, we're not talking about it here because it's a very visual uh, concept but it is something you should absolutely know and that you are liable to get tested. Liable is probably not the best word but you, you'll probably may get tested on it uh, on test day. Um, and those are the corresponding population pyramids. So these stages, like Phil uh, verbally described, have these different um, overall shapes, right? So whether they're increasing in in size, decreasing in size, et cetera, those are shown on population pyramids that you should take a moment, sit down, look at, get a general understanding of how they work, make sure that you compare, you know, a, a, each pyramid shape to a stage and you'll be good to go. Um, but just wanted to make sure that you guys remember, because we, we gave this disclaimer a lot at the beginning of the podcast. We haven't given it as much because chances are you've heard a lot of our podcast by now. Um, but we're giving you some of what you need to know from the AEMC section outline, right? We're going over what is amenable and, you know, It it makes sense to go over verbally, especially for people who are listening and not watching. Um, But this is not exhaustive. (laughs) So just go ahead and
0: don't forget to, to review those things as well. Right, exactly. I will note if any of you guys are in like the courses um, at Jack West, and like we do go through all of the terms in the course, but a lot of them just kind of require images in order to do a deep dive into, in order to kind of like explain. Um, to be honest, this demographic transition model is one of those things that we, we already were kind of discussing, like that's kind of hard to to talk about without being able to visualize like the, the birth rates and death rates and populations in these different stages. But ultimately we decided like, oh, it's interesting enough, like we'll Make it work. Um, I do think yeah. it is kind of interesting because there's also some stuff going on, as you mentioned, like technology and like maternal age and things like that, all of those can play a role, but also just like socioeconomic stuff. Like personally, I would say that like the US, like internally is probably like in that sort of like fifth stage, like with ignoring the the like moving in and out and other external factors. But I think a lot of that has to do with just financial stuff. Like it is like looking, turning back the hands of time, you know, like 50, 60 years ago, like like, a couple could get married, one person is working, and they could buy a house when they were like 22. Right. And like, that kind of doesn't work anymore. And so like the financial struggles, like the cost of schooling has gone way up, the cost of, of healthcare has gone way up, the cost of housing has gone way up. But the the pay like the pay rates have not nearly gone up at the same rate. And so now I would say a lot of people in their 20s and even 30s are struggling financially to even just like support themselves, let alone supporting a family, right? Like like even in today's world, most families are like a, a working couple, right? Like the, the, both of them, both of them are working, Um with like daycare or like parents kind of helping out or chipping in or whatever. Um, And so like, it's, it's kind of gotten harder. It's harder to have kids um, than it used to be. Um, And so that's also something that may be influencing this as well. And so like some changes in economic structure may drift this from a stage five back to a stage four um, or kind of change things up a little bit there. Um, So it's just kind of interesting looking at those things. Um, like culture, how they view stuff, like that might be, like driving this movement to stage five as well. I also just like anecdotally, like I I didn't n- understand this this model um, when I was younger, but like when I was in college, I studied abroad, and I remember going to so I started abroad in Ireland, and like I rem- remember going to Ireland and. Like I took a geography course while I was over there just because I'm like, oh, this will be interesting. It was really hard because I didn't know anything about Irish geography. And so everyone assumes that, you know, all the counties of Ireland. I'm like, I don't know any of the counties. Um, But like looking up at the data, you know, stuff like, there was like, you know, this building is twice as old as my country, right? Like this building is twice as old as America. And so I just didn't understand like why everywhere I went, like there's like lots of space, And farms and like, why is it that like back home, everything is constantly building up and expanding and kind of like houses are being built and the the cities are growing constantly. Like, I didn't understand how in Ireland there was any countryside left because if they were growing at the same rate that like my area was growing back home, like eventually there's no, there's no countryside just because everything is houses, Um, which we will talk about some of those, some things related to that here in a second. But it's because, like, Ireland had reached this, like, stable population. There's a lot of countries, especially in Europe, because those generally are the countries that have been industrialized the longest of all, the, like, the countries. Now, there are some, like, Asia stuff, for sure, as well, and some some Northern Africa and Middle East. But... Um, those populations, like the population of like Belgium tends not really to fluctuate. And Germany doesn't really fluctuate. The population in the U.S. is really going up. Where you see a lot of the population growth in the world right now is in countries that are industrializing and becoming um, more modern, uh, especially places like India. Like there's there's a, like a huge population growth there in the last just couple of years, which comes with its own problems, but also parts of Africa. Um, Asia, just kind of overall, you would tend to see more, um, explosive population growth in those areas that, you know, th- they're, they're like some towns are like just now getting like good, clean running water. Right. And like those places aren't some of those earlier, like stage two, stage three, and maybe even some places are still in stage one, um, in terms of like access to healthcare, you know, like Pacific islands and things like that. Like they don't have a lot of the resources that you would in a city in the U S. So just kind of, I, I think it's worth understanding that the population is growing and continuing to grow, but like not necessarily the same equally in different countries. And the demographic transition model helps explain why this is. And also explains why Malthus was seeing this like giant explosion in population growth that made him really worried about like Oh my gosh! There's gonna be too many people and not enough food, and we're all gonna die of starvation.
1: Yeah, very a very bleak um, theory yeah. <laughs> to be sure. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's great context for us to to keep in mind as we you know look at this theory as we look at how it might play out in different countries now. Um, and I think that's that's a great point, right? Your your thought, the way you were thinking about being in Ireland, and okay, well, why why aren't things just why is there still open space left and and whatnot? Um, I think that maybe that makes it easier for us to understand this next concept, um, which you kind of hinted at already. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of times, right, especially in, in the United States, um, there are these areas, these centers that will grow. Uh, out of proportion to the space that they're in as, you know, we uh, continue to um, advance technologically and try and uh, consolidate where we do our business, things like that in these urban centers, right? These cities pop up and these cities will often continue to grow. Um, and you think about any of the major cities, you know, in, in the U.S., just probably the class examples, probably New York, New York city, Mm -hmm. I think, or maybe that's because I'm on the East coast. I'm sure. So I'm sure some people from, from the West coast might have their own ideas, but you know, places like um, Chicago, Philadelphia, right. Like LA, I'm sure as well. Um, So these cities, they, they have all these people and people flock in, they move to these areas, right. These there's this urbanization. Um, But there comes a point where people will decide, well, I don't want to stay in this very urban area. And that can be due to a lot of reasons. That can be due to crowding, right? There's so many people in this single place that there's just I, I just need to get out. Right. Um, it can be financial, like like you've been talking about. Um it gets expensive to live in big cities. And the more that certain businesses move into these areas, the higher the prices go, right? Of the, the real estate and um, like living in the area, depending on what the person wants for their family, right? They might decide that they want more of a countryside. They want more space, right? They want a backyard. Um, and so all of these can contribute to um, uh, people leaving, right? These these urban areas. Um, so. This, this can produce a term where what's called suburbanization. So basically suburbs popping up right around the cities. So they're not entirely rural. They're still associated with these larger cities, but they're separated enough that they start developing almost their own personalities. There are lots of shows that will like TV shows that will play off of this. And it's like the suburban mom, you know, and, um, I don't know if anyone has seen WandaVision. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so such a good show but anyway uh you know you think about it like in in the show right they're in Wanda and Vision they go off into what is essentially the suburb right and so you know the suburban life has its draws and people will move now what can happen is if people leave these urban areas really quickly right um and there isn't there isn't enough upkeep of the infrastructure and things like that you can end up having what's called urban decline so basically the city goes into this awful state. Um, and it's often due to people just leaving en mass, um, not, uh, not providing that, that upkeep. Um, there's also this, with this really large, like emigration, there's also, you know, there's not just the occupants, but also the economic impact, right? The financial impact of a bunch of people just leaving. Um, I was reading recently and I think something I want to say was Detroit. Didn't Detroit, uh, didn't Detroit go bankrupt? A few yeah. years ago recently. Yeah,
0: was, I definitely during the financial crisis in 2008, I know they were in really bad snares where they were literally just trying to get people to move back in. And they were like, free houses. Like, we will just give you a house if you move into this this neighborhood.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, that's, we we think about, okay, why would, you know, people would leave and it's it's more expensive. But you have to keep in mind that when people move from one area to another, they are taking however small, however large, their financial, um, their financial stake with them, right? And so if you have this area that a bunch of big businesses moved into and drove up the price, and then people left, and then, you know, now there's no one to pay these exorbitant prices, right? The the city, the, the urban area can go into this awful state, hence urban decline. So um, suburban, so the urban areas, right? Cities, suburbanization, people leaving those for any number of reasons. A lot of them, um, we've touched on a few, there are plenty more. And then, depending, um, you know, if, if it's very quick, you can end up with urban sprawl, you can end up with urban decline, um, but really focusing on the
0: collective impact of people moving as a potential source for these. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, especially just looking like turning back the hands of time. Like, why did these cities show up? Is because You needed them, like you needed to be near everything in order to get stuff, right? Like I know it's hard to imagine, but there are times in the US, like when New York was around in LA and Kansas City, where I'm at in Chicago and Boston, and like those towns existed before like refrigerators. And so like if like if you needed food, like you couldn't get food and then just like keep it forever, right? Like you needed to be able to go out, get food and come back. And then, like, hopefully cook the food. And, like, that was something that you wanted to do, like, almost daily, right? And so you wanted to be near the stores. You wanted to be near the the resources, right? Like, remember, we're talking, like, before cell phones, before phones, period, right? Like, people are communicating by telegrams. And so in order for you to have resources, in order to you to... In order for you to do things like be able to like wash your laundry or, you know, get food or see your friends, right? Like if cars didn't exist in the beginning of America, like you need to be near your friends, you need to be near the store, you need to be near the dry cleaners, you need to be near all of these things. And so everyone kind of like starts to clump up, especially where It's really easy to bring in resources. That's why there's a lot of places on the coast and also on rivers, because you could bring food and stuff in and out on the rivers and bring in resources and things a lot easier than you could to like the middle of nowhere, like Utah. That's why like the middle of nowhere, Utah has like no population and like hardly, like hardly any cities. But things have changed, right? Things like, like if I want, (laughs) like, like if I want food. I don't have to go out and get the food that I want to eat today. I don't have to get that today. I could get it like last week or even a month ago, like if I throw it in my freezer. Right. And so it's a lot easier to get stuff. If you need something, right. Like if you need a piece of rope, right. You don't have to walk down to the Hockenhauer's general store. Like you could, you can order that on Amazon. It's, it's at your house tomorrow. And so a lot of this has led to, like, we don't really need to be in the cities as much. And I think especially in the last couple of years with uh, COVID and internet and work from home stuff, I actually think like the suburbanization and urban decline is going to probably get much worse or much more extreme in the next several years. Because now a lot of people like, you didn't even have to be near your work, right? Like I I have not been within 100 miles of a coworker for the last five years of my life. And that's kind of like a weird, strange thing, right? Um, But I think that that just starts to happen more and more as like the internet and resources get easier to kind of like move between places and move to stuff. And so I think the suburbanization and urban decline might become a more prominent thing um, in the years to come, which is just kind of a strange thing to think about. Um, but it's not all doom and gloom, right? It's not all stuff gets bad. Like things sometimes like an area of town can be bad and gets better, right? And that that brings up a, a couple of other different terms. Um, you have gentrification and you have urban renewal. So these two terms, like I think everyone, like most students have a good idea of what these things mean. And then I ask them like, all right, what's the difference between them? And like students always go like, wait a minute, they're like, eyes get real big. And they're like, wait, like they're a deer in a headlight. Like, wait, maybe I don't actually know this as well as I should. And so gentrification is a, a neighborhood that's kind of run down, but people live there. That is getting nicer, right? And more improved and like new resources and new stores and stuff move in. Urban renewal is like the buildings are abandoned and there's like graffiti everywhere and we're making this nicer, a better place to live. Now, both of these seem like good things at first, just on the, on the, like the skin of it of like, Oh wait, things are getting nicer. Like the street, the sidewalks are, are in better shape. Like the yards are better taken care of. Like there's fancier stores and, and people want to live here. Like that seems like a good thing. Um, And it definitely is in the case of urban renewal. If you're looking at places that are abandoned um, and like just falling down and crumbling infrastructure, like making it so that somebody wants to live there, it's great. It's fantastic. But in gentrification, there are people who already live in this place. And making the neighborhood all of a sudden much nicer has some downsides because nicer is also often more expensive. Right, so if you live in a in a neighborhood where, um, let's say, you're on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, um, you you take care of all your own, um, all your own uh, like lawn care and like all your own like fixing things around the house because you can't really pay for someone to do it. You shop at like Aldi's and like you buy things in in bulk and because it's just more efficient and cheaper. If all of a sudden like the neighborhood starts to get nicer and people start to move in, like your, your your area changes. And at first, like it's it's nice because like the houses get fixed up nicer and like the neighborhoods prettier. But like the people who live in, in this nicer area, they have more money. And so they kind of want nicer things. So they want to like improve the infrastructure. So improve the streets, improve the police force, improve improve the fire. Um, fire department. And all of those are great things, but they all cost money. And so now all of a sudden, because everyone here is richer in this area, they're voting to raise property taxes. And so now all of a sudden, your house you've lived in all your life, you're struggling to live in it because other people have moved in nearby. And that Aldi store that you 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 shop at that has everything for, for very cheap, that closes and up goes a Whole Foods, where the food is like two or three or four times as expensive. And the the store you used to go to, to get your hardware stuff, to like fix your house and other things, those kind of have gone away because nobody's fixing their own stuff anymore. And so now like you have less resources there and your house is, is getting even worse. And like now your neighbors are complaining and like all of a sudden this place where you've lived your whole life, you don't fit in and you can't afford to live there and like rents will go from like, you know, $500 a month to $3,000 a month. And so if you don't own a house there, then you're really in trouble. And so like you, you literally cannot afford to live in the same place that maybe your parents lived because this place has gotten nicer and you've been priced out. And that can cause issues, especially with, you know, people who have developed like roots and relationships and all of a sudden not being able to live where you've lived your entire life that's, that can be very traumatizing um, to people. Like, what if, like, imagine that you lived in this, in, in a place that you loved and where your parents are. And like, somebody said, you just can't live here anymore. Like you're not allowed to come to this area, right? Like that would be very traumatic to kind of go through. And, and so a lot of people in these areas where gentrification occurs, end up losing like their home, end up losing their sense of home, and so, in a lot of ways, gentrification is seen as kind of a more negative thing, even though technically the areas are getting nicer and like the facilities are improved, and like the city seems cleaner and prettier and maybe has less crime, like the people who live there can't live there anymore, and so you're you're kicking them out to make room for other people who do want to live in this nicer place, and that's um that can be a little bit unfortunate overall,
1: ah. <laughs> I I have so much to say on this, but first um, I like all these. So if I had one nearby, I would definitely be shopping there. Um, So yeah, I think something that's really important to keep in mind with, Uh, Gentrification is that you can also have, so there might be instances like Phil was saying where, you know, they're doing these overall improvements, right? And things that, you know, everyone should have better access to, right? Everyone should have access to safe roads. Everyone should have access to a solid fire department,
0: et cetera. Healthcare. They're also good. Like hospitals and,
1: yeah. Exactly. Um, There are also instances where things that the community doesn't care about or doesn't want come in, right? And it's because it's nicer because it's um perceived as being of higher value that it come it's brought into that area and then that is at a, it's also at a clash with what the people in that area want, right? Beyond just what, you know, everyone should should have basic access to. So, I studied at the University of Chicago. And um before that, I was in this um just like in uh, an area in Florida where it's very much um it's very much like a Hispanic and black area. Um, and so I didn't know a whole lot about things like gentrification, et cetera, when I got to college. Um, and it wasn't long uh, when, when I started studying at U Chicago that I started finding out about these things because for anyone who doesn't know, um, so the University of Chicago is located on the South side of Chicago. And so this is an area that has historically been, and actually is still um, predominantly a black community. And it has, you know, it has had a reputation of a lot of crime, um, a lot of, you know, like lower socioeconomic status, et cetera. New Chicago came (laughs) and just plopped itself right in. Um, And that displaced a lot of people. And what has happened as the years have continued is that the university pushes and uh, has its hands in things that they believe will make the area better for its students, for itself, for the institution, right. And what happens is imagine you're in an area right where um, you're like like Phil like you're just just chilling. you're just living your happy life um, and you know you're thinking about like rent prices. All of a sudden, university gets built, right? And as the years go on, what happens? Investors come, they buy homes right? Prices go up. What happens? The people that are coming will want things like maybe they want a whole foods. I, I just saw recently there was like a, uh, when I got there, they were starting to build like high rises in the area. Right. Um, and I, I saw recently something like a, like a Lulu lemon came in, <laughs> you know, just like, um, like yoga and, you know, all these different things that maybe the community doesn't want, Right. And so it becomes more difficult for original community members to be able to stay in this area because, yes, right, maybe they're maybe they're doing something about the roads, but they're also doing, you know, they maybe they actually are. There is some urban renewal going on. But when the people are displaced, when there's this negative component, this um, targeting towards a wealthier audience, then you have this gentrification component that disrupts people's entire lives and you don't have to look very far you could probably type in university of chicago gentrification and something will come up um now if, if anyone from me, chicago is hearing this this is no surprise to them so you know it's it's not like anyone's gonna be oh my gosh how dare she um but it's very real and the reality is a lot of institutions not just educational institutions but institutions in general businesses etc can be promoters of things like gentrification i look around i am i am near i think i've said this before i'm a harvard medical student you know i'm near the undergrad campus because of the hospital i'm assigned to and i look around and i'm like i wonder what this place was like or i wonder what it would have been like if you know you just removed this, this university that is an international, um, destination essentially, Mm -hmm. right. For education, what would the community actually be like? You know, I think about the, the patients that we serve and, you know, a a couple miles away, the patients that are served are very different. Right. And a lot of you think about, okay, well, you know, what kinds, you know, patients from what backgrounds might be going to this hospital versus the next hospital, something that Boston has had issues with in the past, um, because hospitals are perceived a certain way that might in part be due to effects of these, these institutions on the, their surroundings, right. And their environments. Um, so all of that to say, <laughs> I, sorry, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. All of that to say is that gentrification is very much like something that our world is experiencing is that as doctors are also going to impact the patients that we serve, right. They're going to impact whether all of a sudden a patient can make their appointments because they now live, you know, a, two towns over and they can't afford to, you know, taking the bus takes too long to get there, or there's no, you know, easy route. I've already had, you know, instances where patients can't continue to see us because they've had to move. And now it becomes incredibly inconvenient for them. Whereas I, you know, I've also had patients that move and they go out of their way to try and come, you know, because they, for them, it's still worth it and they're still able to. So there's a lot that can be done though. Right, just being mindful, being aware um, who we choose to to engage with, and also advocacy. All of these things. I'm going to keep it very general for the sake of time and everyone's sanity. Um, but these are all things to be to be mindful. Of. We we give you this information, and it's you're not studying this information for the psych psych section in some bubble, right? This these topics are important to learn because they will impact your understanding of the world, because they will impact how you interact with the people that you are going to be serving and that you are going to be working with. And so even when, you know, you have topics like this and you're just like, when, what patient is going to ask me about, you know, Thomas Malthus's theory and the demographic transition model, right? Like, who's going to ask me about that? No, maybe not, but maybe it helps put things into perspective when a patient comes from a different country and they're telling you about their family, right, or their family structure. Um, maybe, you know, thinking, recognizing the effects of gentrification can help you better tap in and recognize when there's something else going on with the patient about why they can't, um, you know, come to their appointments, things like that. So there's so much here, It's just a matter of, Finding it and holding on to it, and then hopefully remembering it and putting it into practice someday. <laughs>